0: Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today we offer the story of six Dutch resistance fighters during World War II, beginning with the story of Honey Shaft and sisters Truus and Freddy Oversteegen, all three very young female resistance fighters and Nazi killers. The story of Jack Geest, one of only seven men to ever escape Buchenwald. The story of Corey Tenboom, who saved the lives of 800 Jews in the Netherlands. And the story of the father and son Gerard Rieskamp, who owned a special place in Dutch Resistance history. They were a two-man special forces unit. Although their name is known to few, their deeds were remarkable. We're headed for the Netherlands today to honor some true heroes, beginning with the stories of three young women who became members of the Dutch Resistance, risking their lives, and in some cases, giving their lives, by standing up to one of the most brutal regimes on the face of the planet, the German Nazis who overran Europe beginning with Poland in 1939. One of these young women was named Hani Schaft. The medieval city of Harlem, in the Netherlands, just a stone's throw from Amsterdam, is the kind of picturesque old town that you wouldn't want to visit without a camera. It offers all kinds of tours, and restaurants, and museums, and sites, But it's a far cry from the Harlem of 1940 through 1945 in which German troops and tanks, checkpoints, barbed wire, and fear turned it into a dark and living hell, especially for Jews and those they considered to be undesirables, who were hunted daily to be shipped off to concentration camps. Most of today's tourists go there to appreciate the beauty of the cityscape and waterways, and it's not as crowded as Amsterdam, so it makes a nice side visit. TripAdvisor reviews are numerous, and all describe the natural beauty of Harlem. And of the 86 fun things to do while you're in Harlem, number 51 is the Monument to Honey Shaft in Canal Park in Harlem. A July 2019 review reads, This monument stands in tribute to Honey Shaft, a Dutch resistance fighter during the German occupation of the Second World War. Sadly, she did not live to see the end of the war in Europe, which was only three weeks away. The sculpture features a stylized woman tearing a wall apart with her bare hands. A truly inspiring monument to a Dutch hero and also a reminder of all who fought for the Dutch resistance. Another review mentions that, quote, not many people stop to look at the memorial of Honeyshaft. Shaft. You can search for Honeyshaft's Shaft's memorial and you'll find any number of pictures of it. It appears to be bronze and life-size. A young woman who looks to be in her early 20s is standing, and appears to be tearing apart a steel wall, which she has rent down the middle by pulling both sides apart, both sides taller and larger than she is. You look at it, and you can't help but think, she's determined, and she's a fighter, and she is conquering something much larger and powerful than herself. It's moving just to look at it. And then, when you hear her story, you understand, and you respect the memorial much more for its ability to carry the message of courage. Should I ever go to the Netherlands, my first stop will be at that memorial to pay respects to Hani and to those who fought with the Dutch resistance. This is her story. To tell it, we'll need to bring you to the Netherlands in 1940. Nazi Germany invaded the Netherlands on May 10th of 1940. There's always been some confusion, with me at least, as to what comprises the Netherlands and how that is different from Holland. And here is the simple answer. First, the Netherlands is a country in Western Europe bordered on the west and north by the North Sea, on the east by Germany, and on the south by Belgium. The Netherlands is informally referred to by many as Holland. There are twelve provinces in the Netherlands, two of which, and the most prominent of which, are named North and South Holland. The name Holland literally meant woodland in Old English, and originally referred to people from the northern region of the Netherlands. Over time, Holland, at least to English-speaking people, came to apply to the entire country. Throughout World War II, the people of the Netherlands were referred to as Dutch. But that association, since World War II, has become a little more rare, as most Hollanders do not want to be compared with or associated to Germany. Too much bad blood. The Netherlands' four largest cities today are Amsterdam, which is the capital, Rotterdam, The Hague, and Utrecht. It is basically a sea-level country. In fact, the word Netherlands means lower countries. In 1940, the Netherlands were a bone to be chewed in the path of the highly mechanized German army, which had been preparing to overrun Europe for a few years. Nazi Germany invaded the Netherlands on the 10th of May in 1940, and on May 15th, one day after the German bombing of Rotterdam, the Dutch forces surrendered. The Dutch government and the royal family fled the country for London. From there, Princess Juliana and her children, sensing that London was next, moved to the safety of Canada. The Netherlands quickly fell under German occupation, which lasted in some areas until the defeat of the Germans in 1945. It was a five-year war plus for many of them. The Germans dominated the people of the Netherlands using fear tactics and pure military might. At first, resistance was carried on by a small group of people. But as German atrocities grew and the light of freedom grew dimmer and dimmer, more people decided to join those fighting for freedom, knowing it would very likely cost them their lives. The Nazis rounded up and deported the majority of the country's Jews to concentration camps, seizing their property and bank accounts, some of those bank accounts still being fought for in court today. About 70% of Netherlands Jews were killed during World War II a much higher percentage than either Belgium or France. In 2008, records were opened that the Germans had paid a bounty to Dutch police and administration officials to locate and identify Jews, as well as anyone who participated with the resistance. This was a part of the Velvet Glove approach that the Nazis used on the people of the Netherlands between May of 1940 and June of 1941 to buy the loyalty of the county's police and local government assuring them of safety and providing them with security from overreach by the police state. I found this to be very similar to the tactics employed by the British in America during the American Revolution. The army, the British army occupied most of the port cities. The British subverted the disloyal Americans, who we call Tories, and encouraged them to rat on their neighbors. And Americans didn't know who to trust. It makes one wonder. If an outside country were to occupy a portion of America today... How many would stand and fight for freedom? And how many would sell out their freedom for money and safety? And how easy would it be to swing all the media to the side of the invaders? Germany's media psyops programs were ahead of their time. Would our political parties align against the invaders, or would they split, with one buying into the promises of the invader, and the other choosing freedom from any outside domination? It's an interesting question, and one worth discussion. The organization the Germans hated the most was the Communist Party, and it was this organization that formed the bedrock of early resistance in the Netherlands, one of many examples in history where war chooses strange bedfellows. The Dutch resistance to the Nazi occupation during World War II developed relatively slowly, but its counterintelligence, domestic sabotage, and communications networks provided key support to Allied forces beginning in 1944 and through the liberation of the country. Discovery by the Germans of involvement in the resistance meant an immediate death sentence. The country's terrain, lack of wilderness, and dense population made it difficult to conceal any illicit activities, and it was bordered by German-controlled territory, offering no escape route except by sea. Resistance in the Netherlands took the form of small-scale, decentralized cells engaged in independent activities. The Communist Party of the Netherlands, as mentioned, however, organized resistance from the start of the war. So did the circle of liberal democratic resistors who were linked through Professor Dr. Willem or Wim Schemmerhorn to the Dutch government in exile in London, which was called the National Force Units. This was one of the largest resistance groups, numbering around 550 active participants. It was also heavily targeted by Nazi intelligence for destruction due to its links with the United Kingdom. Some small groups had absolutely no links to others. These groups produced forged ration cards and counterfeit money, collected intelligence, published underground newspapers, sabotaged phone lines and railways, prepared maps, and distributed food, goods, and sometimes weapons. After D-Day, the existing national organizations, the LKP, the OD, and the Council of Resistance, merged into the internal forces under the command of Prince Bernhard. One of the riskiest activities was hiding and sheltering refugees and enemies of the Nazi regime. Jewish families, underground operatives, draft-age Dutch, and others. Collectively, these people were known as underdoikers, or underdivers. Later in the war, this system of people hiding was also used to protect downed Allied airmen. Reportedly, resistance doctors in Erlen concealed an entire hospital floor from German troops. In February of 1943, a Dutch resistance cell rang the doorbell of the former head of the Dutch General Staff and now collaborating Lieutenant General Heinrich Seifert in The Hague. Seifert commanded the campaign to recruit Dutch volunteers for the Waffen-SS and the German war effort on the Eastern Front. After he answered and identified himself, he was shot twice and died the following day. This assassination of the high-level official triggered a harsh reprisal from SS General Hans Albin Rauter, who ordered the killing of 50 Dutch hostages and a series of raids on Dutch universities. On October 1st and 2nd, 1944, the Dutch resistance attacked German troops to the village of Putin, which resulted in war crimes on behalf of the occupying Germans. After the attack, part of the town was destroyed, and seven people were shot in the Putin raid. The entire male population of Putin was deported, and most were subjected to forced labor, only 48 out of 552 of them surviving the camps. The Dutch resistance attacked Rauder's car on March 6, 1945, unaware of the identity of its occupant, which in turn led to the killings at Wooster Hove, where 116 men were rounded up and executed at the site of the ambush, and another 147 Gestapo prisoners executed elsewhere. That brings us up to date on the world in which Honey Shaft lived and functioned. Her story begins right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. And now, our story. Janetsy Johanna Jo Shaft, born September sixteenth, 1920, was a Dutch resistance fighter during World War II. She became known as the Girl with the Red Hair. Her secret name in the resistance movement was Honey. Her friends knew her as Jo. Janetsy was born in Harlem, the capital of the province of North Holland. Her mother, Afgi Talia Schaft, born Breyer was a Mennonite and her father, Peter Shaft, was attached to the Social Democratic Workers' Party. The two were very protective of Janetchi, largely because of her older sister, Anna, who died in 1927 with diphtheria. If you look at Hani's college pictures, she looks like the girl next door, intelligent, well-poised, alert, and smiling. At that time, she had only a year or two to live. From a young age, Schaff discussed politics and social justice with her family, which encouraged her to pursue law and become a human rights lawyer. During her law studies at the University of Amsterdam, which she started in 1938, she became friends with the Jewish students Sonia Frink and Filene Polak. This brought her into the world of the Jews at that time and made her feel strongly about actions and attitudes that were being taken against the Jews. With the German occupation of the Netherlands in World War II, University students, at least for a while, were immune to the Nazi threat. However, in 1943, those same students were required to sign a Declaration of Allegiance to the Occupation Authorities. When Schaff refused to sign the petition in support of the Occupation Forces, as did 80% of her fellow students, she was not allowed to continue her studies, and in the summer of 1943, she moved in with her parents again, taking Sonia Frank and Filene Polak with her. "'sending them into hiding. "'This action alone was punishable by death. "'Upon leaving the university, "'she joined the Rod van Verset "'or Council of Resistance, "'a resistance movement that had close ties "'to the Communist Party of the Netherlands. "'The Rod van Verzet, "'which was started in May of 1943 by Jan Thiessen, "'served as the umbrella organization "'for a number of local resistance organizations "'throughout the country. "'Hani was initially assigned courier duties,' delivering messages and needed items to resistant members, an extremely dangerous responsibility which required travel through German-controlled checkpoints. She usually traveled by bicycle. One of her early missions was to steal identity cards for her Jewish friends. A public pool provided the opportunity for that. She also helped to raise money for the resistance. Hani soon expressed a desire to work with weapons and was soon trained in the use of explosives and firearms. Her personal choice for a weapon was the FN 1922, a 765 millimeter semi-automatic handgun featuring a walnut grip. It was designed by Browning and manufactured in Belgium. On the night that she was assigned to kill her first target, her gun would not fire. Though she pulled the trigger a number of times, her intended victim came to no harm. As it turned out, it was a test to make sure she would go through with it. She passed. It was after that that she began killing Nazis. To accomplish this, she sometimes worked alone, and other times worked with two other female resistance fighters, the sisters Truis and Freddy Overstegen. The three often found creative ways to eliminate Nazi officers and Dutch traitors. We'll talk more about Truis and Freddy in a few minutes. Hani was responsible for sabotaging and assassinating various targets. She carried out attacks on Germans, Dutch Nazis, Dutch collaborators... And traitors. She learned to speak German fluently and became involved with German soldiers, involvements which led to their deaths and disappearances. When asked to kidnap the children of a Nazi official, she refused. If the plan had failed, the children would have to be killed, and Schaaf felt that that was too similar to the Nazis' acts of terror. When seen at the location of a particular assassination, Schaff was identified as the girl with the red hair. Her involvement led the girl with the red hair to be placed on the Nazis' most-wanted list at the order of Hitler himself. On June 21, 1944, Shaft and Jan Bonkamp, a friend in the resistance, carried out an assassination in Zandam on Dutch police officer and collaborator Willem Ragut. Shaft fired first and hit Ragut in the back. Bonkamp was shot in the stomach by Ragut before killing him. Mortally wounded, Bonkamp fled the scene, but was arrested shortly afterwards and taken to hospital. There, on drugs, he inadvertently gave Schaff's name and address to Dutch Nazi nurses, feigning to be resistance workers. To force Schaff to come to them, German authorities arrested her parents and sent them to the Vught concentration camp. The distress of this situation and her grief over Bonkamp's death forced Schaff to cease resistance work at least temporarily. Her parents were released after two months. Upon recovery, Shaft dyed her hair black and wore glasses to hide her identity, and then returned to resistance work. She once again contributed to assassinations and sabotage, as well as courier work, and the transportation of illegal weapons and the dissemination of illegal newspapers. As mentioned, Hani often went on missions with twin sisters Freddie and Truvis Overstegen, who were younger than Hani. Freddie Overstegen, who died fairly recently at age 93, waged a campaign of killing and sabotage, along with her sister, but struggled to adapt to peacetime. We'll have a little more on that later. The first thing the Nazis took from Freddy Ogersteven was her bed. Her mother, Trigen, a woman bringing up her children independently in the Dutch city of Harlem, sheltered Jews, dissidents, and gay people as they fled Germany in the 1930s. Overstegen, who was seven when Adolf Hitler came to power, bunked in with her big sister, Truis, to make room. It was the start of a struggle that would last until she died on 5th of September, the day before her 93rd birthday, in a nursing home not far from where, as teenagers, she and Truist carried out a campaign of assassinations and sabotage against Nazi invaders with pistols hidden in their bicycle baskets. If you ask me, the war only ended two weeks ago, her son Remy Decker told the Observer. In her mind, it was still going on and on and on. It didn't stop even until her last day. Overstegen's war began one Friday in May of 1940 with planes roaring overhead and the smell of smoke. Realizing the Nazis had invaded the Netherlands, her family began burning their radical literature. Overstegen, then 14, and Truus, her sister, were already used to smuggling refugees and distributing forbidden texts. It wasn't long before the resistance came to recruit them. Her mother only gave them one rule, Overstegen once recalled it as Always stay human. Overstegen was petite, and with her twin plates, she easily passed for twelve. Her innocent looks made her invaluable as she could slip by Nazi controls unnoticed. The two sisters began as couriers, moving weapons and stealing identity papers to help Jewish people escape. One of their early assignments was arson. The two burned down a Nazi warehouse, flirting with the guards as a distraction. Soon they were taken to an underground potato shed and taught how to shoot. Their method was the Dutch equivalent of a drive by. My mother drove the bicycle and Freddie sat on the back and was shooting, recalled Truis' daughter, Honey Menger. Because they were girls, nobody noticed them. Some of their targets were Dutch collaborators who gave the Nazis details of Jewish and dissident families, others were high ranking Nazi officers. On one assignment, to liquidate a member of the SS, the sisters found their target in a restaurant. As Overstegen kept watch, Truist lured him out by seductively proposing a walk in the forest where another resistance fighter shot him dead. The sisters regarded the killings as a grim necessity that was secondary to the more important work, rescuing children. The two helped smuggle Jewish children through the Netherlands, sometimes even as bombs fell from Allied overcraft overhead. Occasionally they were not successful, and children were killed. This caused grief so profound that the sisters' descendants struggle to speak about those operations today. The sisters' cell expanded to include Hani Shaft, as you know, a law student already notorious to Nazi authorities as the girl with the red hair. Truis, a commanding presence with a level gaze and a throaty laugh, was the leader of the three, and the three developed an iron bond. Overstegen never forgot the day that Schaft failed to return from an assignment. She had been captured at a checkpoint. Though her hair was dyed black, the red color of her roots later revealed her identity. Aged twenty-four, Schaft was executed in the dunes west of Harlem, just eighteen days before the Netherlands was liberated. Honey was her soulmate friend, said Manon Hornstra, a filmmaker to whom Overstegen confided many of her warm memories. Freddie could never understand why the Nazis killed her just before the end of the war. She always took red roses to her grave. The peace was not easy for Overstegen after 1945. As the Cold War began and McCarthyism took hold in the United States, communist resistance fighters became so out of favor that in 1951 the Dutch government forcibly tried to prevent the commemoration of Hanischaff's death. Overstegen felt alienated from the country she had fought for and was embittered to see former Nazi sympathizers not held to account. She married Jan Decker, an engineer at a local steel factory, and threw herself into domestic life, raising three children. Her family tried to protect her from troubling memories of the war, but she struggled with the trauma all her life, particularly around the annual remembrance of the dead on the 4th of May. She shot a few people, and these were the real, real bad guys, her son Remy Decker recalled. But she hated it, and she hated herself for doing it. Unlike Truis, who married a fellow resistance fighter and was open about her experiences, Overstegen struggled to speak about the war and sometimes felt overlooked. She feared the very attributes that served her so well during the war. Her tiny stature and sweet voice made her invisible in peacetime. She hated her high voice, Decker said. She used to say, Nobody listens to me. The release of a film about Honey Schaaf in 1981 made Oversteegen famous and helped rehabilitate the sisters in national memory. Eventually, in 2014, the Dutch government awarded them Medals of Military Service in what Mark Root, the Prime Minister, called an act of historical justice. The two sisters retained a deep bond until Truus's death just a few years ago. One word was enough for them to understand each other, recalled Menger, Trues' daughter. They had relied on each other completely during the war. Their lives were always in each other's hands. Towards the end of her life, Freddie began to speak about her war experiences, opening up to the documentary makers Hornstra and Tice Zeevan for their 2016 film Two Sisters in the Resistance. After much persuading, she returned to the woods where Truus had led the SS officer to his death and where, Freddie believed, he is still buried. On the way there in the car, we could see that she was very vulnerable because she started singing, Hornstra recalled. It was a song that the members of the resistance groups always sang when they were afraid. Back to Hani, she was eventually arrested at a military checkpoint in Harlem on March 21, 1945, while distributing the illegal communist newspaper Devoured, literally, The Truth, which was a cover story she was actually transporting secret documentation for the resistance, working closely with Anna Winchhoff. Haney was brought to a prison in Amsterdam. After much interrogation, torture, and solitary confinement, Shaft was identified by the roots of her red hair by her former colleague, traitor, Anna Winshoff. Shaft was executed by Dutch Nazi officials on April 17, 1945. Although at the end of the war... There was an agreement between the occupier and the Dutch resistance to stop executions. She was shot dead anyway, eighteen days before the end of the war, in the dunes of Overveen, near Blumenthal. Two men took her there, and one shot her at close range, only wounded her. She is said to have told her executioners, I shoot better, after which the other man delivered the final shot to the back of her head. On November 27, 1945, Shaft was reburied in a state funeral at the Dutch Honorary Cemetery, Bloemendal. Members of the Dutch government and royal family attended, including Queen Wilhelmina, who called Shaft the symbol of resistance. After the war, the remains of 422 members of the resistance were found in the Bloemendal dunes. 421 men and one woman, Hanni Shaft. She was reburied at the honorary cemetery, Arabograph Blomendale, in the dunes in Overveen, in the presence of Princess Juliana and her husband, Prince Bernard. Later, as Queen, it was Juliana that unveiled the bronze commemorative statue in the Canal Park in nearby Harlem, her birthplace. Schaft was one of 95 people to receive the Dutch Cross of Resistance, and General Eisenhower awarded her a decoration, possibly the Medal of Freedom. The Dutch people have never forgotten her sacrifice. A number of schools and streets have been named after her. For her and other resistance heroines, a foundation has been created, the National Honey Shaft Foundation. A number of books and movies have been made about her. She features in The Assault, made in 1982 by Harry Moolish, also released as a movie directed by Fonz Rudemakers. Aniki Verdener wrote a song about her. Author Thune DeVries wrote a biography of her life, which has inspired the movie The Girl with the Red Hair, which came out in 1981, by Ben Verbong, featuring Renée Sodendick as Honey Shaft. She was remembered each year in November during a national event held at her memorial in Harlem. The last Sunday of each November in the Netherlands is a day of remembrance for Shaft's life and work. There were hundreds of heroes of the Dutch Resistance, and this story wouldn't be complete if I didn't introduce some of their stories to you, beginning with the incredible saga of Jack van der Geest. Jack van der Geest was one of only seven people to escape from Buchenwald concentration camp. He escaped on March 3, 1943. A copy of his own death certificate appears in his book, appropriately titled, Was God on Vacation? He was a member of the Dutch Resistance Movement and French Resistance, afterwards becoming a translator for the 101st Airborne during World War II. Jack was born at Teislerstraat, 58, in The Hague, Netherlands. Van der Geest and his father were heavily involved in Dutch resistance activities, including hiding Jews. Van der Geest's father was president of the Lensfield Nikola, a bread factory in The Hague. He had worked his way up from being an errand boy at the factory at age 14 to eventually become president. Van der Geest's father was sent to Camp Voot, where Hani's parents were sent and was killed there on February 19, 1943. Van der Geest was educated at an aviation institute in Scheveningen. On his graduation date in 1942, he decided not to go to the graduation and found out later that Nazis had forcibly enlisted the entire graduating class for Hitler's war machine. In September 1942, the Gestapo raided the Van der Geest apartment in The Hague. They were betrayed by a neighbor. Jack and his parents were taken first to the Orange Hotel. Van der was sent to Buchenwald and was incarcerated there from September 15, 1942 to March 3, 1943. His prisoner number was 512601. He stayed in Block 46 and survived brutal medical experience at the hands of Dr. Erwin Ding Schuller, who performed often deadly experiments on over 1,000 prisoners. It should be noted that this German animal, Erwin Ding Schuller, was caught by the Allies and committed suicide in 1945. Vandergeest escaped on march 3, forty three, but pretending to be dead prior to the 5 AM roll call at Buchenwald. He was thrown into a pile of bodies approximately fifty yards long and four feet high. He lay there for eleven hours, and then, weighing only about eighty pounds, was able to kill an SS guard, put on his uniform, and ride a truck out of camp. He then traveled to Neuf Chateau, France, where with the assistance of Maquis members Dr. Marvel, a dentist, And his wife Cherie, he became a member of the French Resistance. Van der Geest later became attached to the 101st Airborne Division as an interpreter. He became a U.S. citizen in 1953 and later joined the U.S. Air Force. In 1995, he wrote a book titled, Was God on Vacation? as we just mentioned. He lived in Rapid City, South Dakota, U.S., for more than 55 years. He was a member of the USA 101st Airborne Association. September 17, 2008, Van der Geest's 85th birthday was commemorated by a tribute made in the US Senate by Senator John Thune. Then there's Cory Tenboom, who was born to a working-class family in Harlem, Netherlands, and was the youngest child of Casper Tenboom, a jeweler and watchmaker. The Tenboom family lived above Casper's watch shop where she trained to be a watchmaker herself, and in 1922, Corrie Ten Boom became the first woman to be licensed as a watchmaker in the Netherlands. She and her family were Calvinist Christians in the Dutch Reformed Church, and their faith inspired them to serve their society, which they did by offering shelter, food, and money to those who were in need. In May of 1940, the Germans invaded the Netherlands. In May of 1942, a well-dressed woman came to the Ten Booms with a suitcase in hand and told them that she was a Jew. Her husband had been arrested several months earlier. Her son had gone into hiding and occupation authorities had recently visited her, so she was afraid to go back to her home. She heard that the Ten Booms had previously helped their Jewish neighbors, the Wheels, and asked if they could help her too. Casper readily agreed that she could stay with them, although the police headquarters was only half a block away. Corrie and her sister Betsy opened their home to Jewish refugees and members of the resistance movement, and as a result, they were sought after by the Gestapo and its Dutch counterpart. The refugee work which Ten Boom and her sister did at the Beige became known by the Dutch Resistance, which sent an architect to the Ten Boom home to build a secret room adjacent to the room for the Jews who were in hiding and an alert buzzer that could be used to warn the refugees to get into the room as quickly as possible. Thus the Ten Booms created what became known as the Hiding Place. The secret room was in Corrie's bedroom behind a false wall and held six people. A ventilation system was installed for the occupants. A buzzer could be heard in the house to warn the refugees to get into the room as quickly as possible during security sweeps through the neighborhood. They had plenty of room, but wartime shortages meant that food was scarce. Every non-Jewish Dutch person had received a ration card, the requirement for obtaining weekly food coupons. Through her charitable work, Ten Boom knew many people in Harlem and remembered a family with a disabled daughter whose father was a civil servant who was now in charge of the local ration card office. She went to his house one evening, and when he asked how many ration cards she needed, I opened my mouth to say five, she wrote, in her book The Hiding Place. But the number that unexpectedly and astonishingly came out instead was one hundred. He gave them to her, and she provided cards to every Jew she met. Ten booms involvement in the Dutch resistance grew beyond gathering stolen ration cards and harboring Jews in her home. She soon became part of the Dutch underground resistance network and oversaw a network of smuggling Jews to save places. All in all, it's estimated that around 800 Jews were saved by Ten Boom's efforts. On 28th of February, 1944, a Dutch informant, Jan Vogel, told the Nazis about the Ten Boom's work, and at around 12.30 p.m. of that day, the Nazis arrested the entire Ten Boom family. They were sent to scheveningen prison when resistance materials and extra ration cards were found in their home. The group of six people hidden by the Ten Boom's, made up of both Jews and resistance workers, remained undiscovered. Though the house was under constant surveillance after Ten Boom's arrest, police officers who were also members of the resistance coordinated the refugees' escape. Ten Boom received a letter one day in prison. All the watches in your cabinet are safe. Meaning that the refugees had managed to escape and were safe. Four days after the raid, resistance workers transferred them to other locations. Corey, Betsy, and their father Casper were held in prison. Casper died ten days after going in. Corey was initially held in solitary confinement. After three months, she was taken to her first hearing. At her trial, Ten Boom spoke about her work with people with mental disabilities. The Nazi lieutenants scoffed because the Nazis had been killing individuals with mental disabilities for years in accordance with their eugenics policies. Ten Boom defended her work by saying that in the eyes of God, a mentally disabled person might be more valuable than a watchmaker or a German lieutenant. Cory and Betsy were sent from Jeveningen to Herzigenbusch, a political concentration camp, also known as Camp Vote, which has come up twice already in this story, and finally to the Ravensbrück Concentration Camp, a women's labor camp in Germany. There they held worship services after the hard days of work by using a Bible that they had managed to smuggle in. Through the two sisters' teachings and examples of unfailing charity, many of the prisoners there converted to Christianity. While they were in prison at Ravensbrück, Betsy and her sister began to discuss plans for founding a place of healing after the war. Betsy's health, though, continued to deteriorate, and she died on 16th of December 1944, in camp, at the age of 59. Before she died, she told Cory, There is no pit so deep that he, God, is not deeper still. Twelve days later, Cory was released. Afterwards, she was told that her release was because of a clerical error, and that a week later... All the women in her age group were sent to the gas chambers. Ten Boom returned home in the midst of the Hunger Winter, which was the Nazis' punishment for Operation Market Garden. They tried to starve everyone in the Netherlands. She still opened her ears to the mentally disabled who were hiding for fear of execution. After the war, Ten Boom returned to the Netherlands to set up a rehabilitation center in Blumenthal. The refuge housed concentration camp survivors and until 1950, exclusively sheltered jobless Dutch who had collaborated with the Germans during the occupation, after which it accepted anyone in need of care. She returned to Germany in 1946, and met with, and forgave, two Germans who had been employed at Ravensbrück, one of whom had been particularly cruel to Betsy. Ten Boom went on to travel the world as a public speaker, appearing in more than 60 countries. She wrote many books during this period. One of these books was titled Tramp for the Lord and was written in the late 60s and early 70s. Each chapter tells a short, different story about her world travels and sharing the gospel message in Africa, Europe, the Americas, Asia, and even in difficult-to-reach and dangerous countries such as Russia, then the USSR, Cuba, and China. It features photographs of Ten Boom and her important messages of forgiveness, hope, love, and salvation through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Ten Boom told the story of her family members and their World War II work in her best-selling book, The Hiding Place, 1971, which was made into a 1975 Worldwide Pictures film called The Hiding Place, starring Jeanette Clift as Corey and Julie Harris as Betsy. In 1977, the 85-year-old Corey migrated to Placentia, California. In 1978, she suffered two strokes. The first rendered her unable to speak, and the second resulted in paralysis she died on her 91st birthday april 15 1983 after suffering a third stroke cory tenboom was buried in fairhaven memorial park in santa ana california and lastly the father and son gerard rieskamp own a special place in dutch resistance history they were two man special forces unit although their name rieskamp is known to few their deeds were remarkable in 1939 Gerard Rieskamp's father was smart enough to see what was coming soon from Germany, and in that year, he started tailing German sympathizers in the area together with his eldest son, Gerard Rieskamp, Jr. Rieskamp already distributed pamphlets before the war to warn people of the imminent danger. Immediately after the invasion, in May of 1940, the elder Rieskamp organized a resistance group in the Goy, which was in nearby Amsterdam. His eldest son, Gerard, together with the later famous resistance fighter Theo Dobby, were members of this group. The group stole chests of ammunition and trottle from the fortifications at Narden, which were later used very effectively by Doby for bombings in Amsterdam. Several months later the group was betrayed and arrested, but father and son Rieskamp managed to escape. As he was wanted by the seizure Heistinst, S. D., Rieskamp was forced to leave his family and drugstore in Narden, behind in nineteen forty, and seek refuge in Sneek, the birthplace of his wife, Sjuki he came into contact with Cybrant Marinus van Herzman Buma, the mayor of Wimbritzerdel. Through his contacts, Rieskamp was able to foment resistance in the province of Friesland. In the area of Sneak, he founded one of the first Friesian Nockplogen, or fighting squads. He was asked to help during large operations elsewhere in the province, most notably during the assault on the Louworden prison, which resulted in the freeing of 52 resistance prisoners. Because of his resistance activities, the Germans wrote him down for several death sentences. A bounty of 10,000 guilders was put on his head, dead or alive. In 1944, Rieskamp was appointed district operation leader of the sabotage teams in southwestern Friesland. Included in his paramilitary activities, he stole chests of ammunition and troll from the guarded arms deposits in the fortified garrison at Narden. That was in June of 1940. He made incendiary bombs out of phosphorus and gunpowder, with which the German ammunition deposits in Sösterberg were destroyed in 1940. Shortly before he was caught and transported to Camp Amersfoort, he managed to escape from the guarded Benengastus in Amsterdam. That was December of 1942. He took charge of two raids on the sneak police station, during which 20 resistance members were freed. As a commander, he organized reception and transport of airdrops with weapons in southwest Friesland. He bombed a train transporting ammunition in Bosum in December of 1944. He helped construct reading groups in the whole of Friesland, which often developed into resistance groups later on. He raided distribution offices in Vommels, October 1942, in Bolsward, Roward, and Montgomery, for ration coupons and identification cards. In Bolsward, he destroyed the address list containing potential candidates for forced labor in Germany. He raided the population register in Rolward for blank identity cards. He raided 10 cheese factories in Friesland. He then shipped food supplies to Amsterdam. Agent Ackerman testified that Rieskamp sent no less than 200 food aid packages which had arrived during the Dutch famine of 1944. Acting basically as a Robin Hood, he also robbed dozens of livestock traders who did not want to donate money to the resistance and the refugees. Immediately after the war, Rieskamp was lauded for his courage and boundless effort he received a commendation by General Dwight D. Eisenhower on behalf of the Allied Expeditionary Force for the courage he had displayed. It should be noted that the last robbery of a livestock trader on January 16, 1945, proved fatal. Rieskamp, who had joined the resistance organization called the Internal Forces by the end of '44 had robbed livestock traders at the request of Heitz Versma, commander of the Frisian branch of the National Organization for Aiding Refugees in order to finance the resistance, which was constantly plagued by money troubles. Money was direly needed to feed the refugees. During his assignment, two members of his group made a failed robbery attempt on a rich livestock trader. When the trader resisted, one of the group members panicked and shot the trader in the head with the pistol he had borrowed from Rieskamp. The livestock trader was left behind in the snow and died of pneumonia a few weeks later. Detective Akima, a German collaborator, found one of the bullets, and held on to it for one and a half years. Akima's father was one of the most notorious Jew hunters in Amsterdam. For one and a half years after the war, Akima Jr. was suspended, awaiting his reprimand. After his suspension was over in 1947, he fanatically committed himself to prosecuting his old wartime enemy, you guessed it, Gerard Rieskamp. The bullet he had kept for so long turned out to be crucial for his purposes in trial. After the war, Rieschkamp was tried as a soldier for his part in the death of the rich livestock trader. That would cost him dearly. The passionate hearing officer, C.H. Beekus, active during the war as a lawyer in Lewwarden, after an initial sentence of two years' imprisonment, appealed and demanded six years' imprisonment. Didrogest states that, according to Beekus, who was completely unaware of any resistance work, the resistance was to have an unblemished record in history the Supreme Military Court sentenced Rieskamp to four years in prison. It was not taken into account that the purpose of that fatal robbery in the war was aiding the refugees. It was not the only remarkable legal aspect of that case. Only after seven months of imprisonment, a lawyer was assigned to Rieskamp. During the trials, his lawyer made little effort in his defense. Witnesses for his defense were not summoned. Rieskamp is the only resistance fighter who was sentenced and imprisoned after the war, for an act of resistance other than assassination. The many hundreds of assassinations carried out by the resistance, even those committed after the war was over, have never led to prosecution. Rieskamp died March 26, 1970, but not before he was honored by Eisenhower for his bravery and contribution to the war effort. The incredible courage of the men and women we have discussed in this story should serve as a beacon to us all that no matter how impossible the odds seem, there are always those who are willing to put it on the line for freedom. And today, we honor them all. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. We appreciate reviews very much. They help us in a lot of ways, telling us where you're from and the reasons you like our shows. We thank all of you who provide us with reviews, and we thank our Patreon supporters, who provide us every month with donations. They go to patreon.com forward slash... 1001 Stories Network, and we appreciate them all. Thanks for joining us. We'll return next week, Sunday night, with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.